There are two really big questions that, um, that governments need to be asking themselves. One is a, a fundamental question of political principles, which is what do you want the state to do? What is the optimum size of a state? Um, but then there's a question that is, that is, to my mind, in some ways, more interesting, which is once you've settled on that vision in the first instance, how are you going to execute to that? The signs of British state failure have been all around us in recent years, from the chaotic early response to COVID-19, the Afghanistan evacuation, and record-long NHS waiting lists, to things like dilapidating schools, a broken planning system, and then much more day-to-day -day when you open up the newspapers. It was once thought that the UK had a Rolls-Royce state apparatus, but today it seems more like a bit-up old rover. Welcome back to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question. Today's question, is the British state broken? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by Professor Alexander Evans of the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics. He's a British career diplomat who's worked in senior roles across 10 Downing Street, the Cabinet Office and the Foreign Office. He's had academic positions at the Library of Congress, Yale and Nuffield College, Oxford, as well as uh, we share a former employer in the Adam Smith Institute where he began his career and he's also spent some time with Policy Exchange. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So let's start with that kind of broad question as someone who's had quite a lot of experience on the inside. Do you have the sense that the British state is broken as some of the media narrative some, sometimes suggests? So look, I don't think the British state is broken, but I think it's it's under significant pressure and it needs uh, certainly re-scaffolding. It probably needs uh, bits of a new roof. Uh, and actually a bit of it is how do we bring it up to date to be a 21st century edifice? Uh, how do we wire it up for the latest technology? How do we make it, if you like, a smart state uh, rather than just a, a, a civil service state? So I think there's some real challenges ahead. Um, Stepping back, there's one other thing that's, that's uh, really relevant here, which is not a new thing. Um, since the 1980s, we've had growing uh, consumer and citizen expectations of everything, of the state, of uh, private services, and we're used to now having one-tap uh, customer experience for our phones. Uh, government still has a lot to do to catch up with that uh, citizen experience, and that's one of the real challenges going forward. When you look internationally, does the UK seem... Uh, particularly laggard, ahead in some areas. And I noticed you spent some time working for the, for the US government um, in their, their State Department. Did you get the sense that anyone is particularly doing well or badly in this context? So I think the interesting uh, strand here is, is often you're looking at a bit of a mixed basket, right? You're seeing, you're seeing some uh, examples of really good practice, things done well in multiple countries, including the UK. Uh, you're seeing an awful lot of stuff that is a bit 50-50, and then you're seeing some things where there is a fundamental problem. The backdrop on all of this is also longevity. Uh, people are living longer. Uh, people are uh, generally spending less time in employment in the course of their entire lives. Uh, so match that to increasing citizen demand, and the expectations of the state are enormous. The state role is getting bigger, um, but the user experience of the state in many countries is not necessarily getting better. Yeah, so something that struck me during COVID was a sense in which the state tries to do so much. It's, it's this uh, ginormous and, and as, as you've said, um, growing machine in, in every imaginable field. But at the same time, when it comes to some core functionalities in, in the, the purpose of 
um, the pandemic was dealing with infectious diseases, it really struggled. Um, some of the arguments we, we heard around the IEA um, and kind of free market groups was this idea that we, we expect too much from the state, that, that we're asking it to do all these all these different things that it's some, a lot of which is not very competent at, to be frank, um, and that it might be easier if that was less the case, if it was more the state focused on a small, narrow set of necessary functions rather than doing everything a little bit meh. So, so look, there's, there's definitely an argument around that. I think what we're seeing is an international mood music, which is the return of big statism. And, and if anything, we're seeing tax rates rise globally, we're seeing state functions rise globally. But the subreddit underneath that is a really interesting trend, which you hear from city managers in the US, you hear it from local government officials in the UK, which is the expectation of activities, by, in particular by local government, which is where the rubber often hits the road, uh, is much greater than it ever has been, but also has been the accretion of responsibilities, often including legal responsibilities on layers of government. Uh, so if you like, there's, there's, there's elective choices that you might make as an official or as a, an elected administration at a local level, but there's also things that are non-optional. There are legal duties, there are uh, statutory duties, and, and the growth of those um, you know, can lead to just a fundamental overloading of government. Uh, and you know, one, uh, you know, one um, uh, American official describes this as a challenge around sort of, um, uh, zombie commitments. So commitments that have been made by previous administrations or at previous points in time that live on in the mandate for administrations but are not necessarily either prioritised or indeed properly resourced uh, to be delivered effectively today. Yeah, I think this is an interesting point that came up around the whole debate around austerity or, or so-called austerity. It's questionable the extent to which the UK actually reduced spending overall. But there were certainly there were certainly individual parts of government, local government being one example, where where the where the UK did cut back. But it, but it seemed to struck me that there was an obsession with kind of cutting spending at the treasury level, but there was no broader assessment of um, trying to actually reduce the functions of, let's say, local government and, and saying that, you know, you no longer have to do these, these and these things. Basically, we just said everyone needs to cut everything by, you know, throughout a number 10%. That doesn't seem like the right way to do it. If you actually want to cut back the state, you have to reassess the functions or, or reduce certain programs. You can't just cut everywhere because some things do need money and were probably defunded as a result and some other things weren't reformed and, and got too much money, let's say. The NHS kept on being funded pretty generously or state pensions, for example, with the triple lock kept on being funded pretty generously. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think there's, there, there, is, there, is this, there is this significant problem that um, state functions tend to, tend to increase, uh, expectations tend to increase, uh, state capacity to do this, and, and you know, let's particularly set it against, um, you don't necessarily have the advantage of being able to invent an infrastructure or technology from scratch. Uh, there are political challenges for both left and right in terms of withdrawing from certain activities. Um, so, so, to my mind, there are two really big questions that, um, that governments need to be asking themselves. One is a, a fundamental question of political principles, which is what do you want the state to do? What is the optimum size of a state? Um, but then there's a question that is, that is, to my mind, in some ways, more interesting, which is once you've settled on that vision in the first instance, how are you going to execute to that? Uh, and it speaks to something that I've been uh, long interested in, which is a, a division between um, the policy strategy bit of a state, which everybody is excited by, that's what it, that's the, the Westminster bubble conversation about the state, and actually um, the state that does things, 
And that's a state that we're most used to. It's the state that uh, delivers our passports or not. It's the state that cleans our streets or not. It's the state that provides health services or not. Uh, and I think the, 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 the challenge in public policy terms often is that execution part of the state and the infrastructure, the design, uh, the thinking, the people in that system gets far less attention than the exciting issues of who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out. Or if you like, the alien versus predator discussion of how relations between the Treasury and Number 10 this week. So, so that, in a sense, that's a lot of what actually uh, I think Dominic Cummings, for all his failures, kind of really spot, spotlights quite effectively in his writing, which is that sense in which we, we get very distracted by the day-to-day -day politics and, as you've said, who up, who's down. But it seems like at, at certain times, particularly during the pandemic or even subsequently on really a whole range of policy issues, is that um, you, you think that, you know, that there's levers you can pull and things get done. But often, uh, at least according to his analysis... Um, you pull levers and nothing happens. You know, you, you say, I'd like to look at this policy issue and, and fix that problem of delivery. But it just, it just seems like there's no connection, there's no capacity then to actually address those things on the ground. Is, is that, from your experience, is that really the, the, the core of the problem here um, when it comes to the kind of state capacity issues when, when you have specific failings? So look, there's, there's I think a hardy perennial about, you know, what happens if you sit at the centre of government and you pull a lever and nothing happens? Uh, right, it's like ordering. It's like ordering an Uber or a Lyft, uh, and just the kind of the, the, the sort of slow circle of weight when you're <laughs> sitting at Heathrow or in, or in central London. Um, so there is that that question of how does the wiring work between um, the centre of government and execution across the government system. Uh, but I think there's also kind of a, a plethora of issues here. Is government really um, using technology properly? Uh, do we are we still, if you like, sort of stuck in a kind of um, 18, 1880s or uh, 1950s version of government in a 2030s world. Um, and, and back to this thing about also, in most organisations, we think about both user experience and we think about uh, management information and analytics that help us make informed decisions. Sometimes bad decisions, but they help us make informed decisions. Uh, and there's still quite a long way to go, I think, in large parts of the public sector uh, to get that those aspects right. That having been said, I do think that the civil service is full of a, a huge number of highly motivated, mission-focused um, professionals who will serve governments of different types. You know, I think there is an underlying professionalism to the public service. Um, but the question that we need to step back on is, is, is what kind of public service do we want? What kind of state do we want? And how do we achieve the outcomes that citizens so badly need? Well, let's get into some of the, the kind of more, I suppose, practical things. You know, Tyler Calvin talked about um, you know, state capacity libertarianism, what, you know, ensuring that, I suppose, the functions of the state that you really do want it to deliver uh, are done properly, you know, foreign policy or um, education or defence or whatever it may be, that we can all agree on are things the state should be doing and should be doing probably better than it does today, ideally. What, what does that take? Is it, does it start with... Um, improving the quality of the civil service, changing the incentives. You know, you say a lot of people are mission-oriented with the civil service. I think if you look at a public choice analysis view, you might say, well, they have their own interests that aren't necessarily aligned with the public all the time. Uh, is there kind of a misalignment problem there? Is the civil service attracting the right kind of people with the right expertise to, you know, if you talk a lot about technology there in your, your previous comments, they can kind of deliver on that. What, what can be done on, on that side of things in terms of the, 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 the people who are responsible, I suppose, both for the policy development, but then the policy delivery as well? 
Well, look, you know, there's obviously lots of different ways one can cut this. Um, I, you know, there's clearly something here about what, what are your fundamental operating principles? What do you think the state is there to do? And there's going to be a different stance from a libertarian perspective to a very status perspective on, on uh, how you might go about that. Not, by the way, uh, one that e neatly maps onto a left-right divide, because I think there's choices then about what you retain as a state activity and what might you uh, seek to um, uh, you know, contract in, contract out, uh, regulate out uh, or, or encourage others to provide. Um, there's clearly something quite major about systems. And um, for the engineers amongst us, the systems predominate. You know, it's, it's how do you get the system right and everything else will follow. There's others who uh, perhaps think that it's much more about human capital. It's about people. How do we get the right people, the right skills, the right disposition into the system? Uh, and, uh, you know, around all of this is a question of culture. Is the culture of a public service focused on citizen experience? Is it focused on outcomes for citizens? Or is too much of a system focused on looking internally and looking upwards? Um, I think there is something here around incentives, but it's not as simple as financial incentives. Most people in the public service at senior level, I think, take lower total compensation than others, even once you factored in you know, what's still a fairly generous pension provision. Um, but obviously there is job security, but there isn't often in, in some other spaces. I think the, the key issues, interestingly, are not necessarily new. There's often not much that's new under the sun. The issues are the same that were identified in the 60s, the same that were identified in the uh, 80s and the 90s. How do you reduce churn in the civil service? How do you think of the agenda, at least over the last sort of 30 years or so, of really professionalising some of the functions within the public service? You know, it makes sense. I don't, want, um, I don't want to have somebody doing dental work on my teeth who isn't a qualified dentist. Why would you want somebody in charge of finance who isn't a qualified finance professional? I certainly don't want somebody negotiating a contract for uh, school food uh, provision to be conducted by somebody who's never been trained in commercial procurement negotiation. So there have been a lot of steps taken to improve that functional capability within government. Um, but there's still, I would, I, I would suggest, quite a long way to go. Out of those views, is it systems? Is it people? Is it culture? Is it political principles, choices? And, by the way, that choice about what do you deprioritise, which you were talking about earlier. Um, I think there is a real challenge here about what are we going to deprioritise? particularly against uh, growing longevity, growing demands on the state. Um, but for me, a lot of it is also about human capital. It's about people. Uh, because actually, if you get the right people in play um, with the right disposition, we could have a very different approach to government, not just in the UK, but elsewhere. And the kind of the ghost at the banquet on all of this is technology. Uh, getting good technology means reaching out to the private sector, reaching out beyond government. It's expensive. Um, but it's even more expensive if we're not making the right choices. So we need people in government who understand technology. And at times, it's going to be more effective to get the right people in part-time, uh, through advisory boards, through secondments, through open recruitment for a spell of time, rather than always trying to make sure we have those people in-house for their careers. Because the people who are going to be most nimble on that are probably going to be at the cutting edge of uh, small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, or very innovative larger tech companies uh, where they're thinking about the, how technology is being applied at the cutting edge of uh, service delivery. Let's come back to technology in a second. I'm, I'm uh, just interested in, in unpacking this point about um, the kind of generalist specialist divide because it still seems, you know, by international standards, the UK civil service does still incentivise generalists um, in, in the sense of 
the classically the grad scheme mean or, or, or uh, advancement, um, at least in some of the, the civil servants that are at a more junior level that I that I know of, they end up jumping between different departments of very different roles um, as a way to work up through the system rather than building kind of very specialist knowledge about something um, and then just continuing their career, just building up that knowledge that and into that specific area. Um, do, you, do you think that's still a problem or is that, it's not, is that you know, kind of mythologised a little bit you know, from, from an outside perspective? Well, look, you know, everybody's perspective is going to be slightly different. I, you know, I, I think you need both generalists and specialists. Uh, and in fact, it's a terrible phrase, but academics love coming up with these. And, and there's somebody who's come up, it's not me, somebody's come up with a phrase of, of looking for um, uh, uh, plurispecialists. <laughs> so basically generalists who have actually some specialist depth uh, rather than just be somebody who flits from lily pad to lily pad each time. Um, the, you know, I, I do think there's something here about training uh, and uh, knowledge within the system. Um, you know, all big bureaucracies, and it's not exclusive to um, the civil service or to a public sector bureaucracy, struggle with knowledge management. Even if you've got a really good knowledge management system, who makes the time to use it? Even if you've got really good training and learning and development, who's really prioritising making sure that that's being done or uh, that individuals are taking it? And most big organisations, you take a, a global bank, you take a... Um, a global pharma company uh, are still likely to, buy, to be led by people who've done that generalist pathway. Even if they were specialists to begin with, you're more likely to find a CEO or a C-suite person who has actually done multiple roles across the organisation. So a, a bit of it is how do, we, how, do we, um, how do we get the benefits of both? I'm very taken by some of the arguments by uh, Michael Bichard and others that we don't have enough intra-public sector mobility in the UK. Um, so if you look at people who move between central government, devolved administrations, arm's length bodies and regulators, or local government and the NHS, you actually see a relatively small number of people who do that movement on a regular basis. So wouldn't it make more sense, um, don't we think we'd probably get better regulation, better policy making, a, a greater focus on, on um, citizens if we had a bit more prosody between those, between those worlds? I'm also a big enthusiast for having more prosody and external recruitment uh, from outside into the civil service and vice versa. I'm not a fan of politicisation. I don't think that's the answer necessarily. Uh, but I think, actually, wouldn't it be great if more civil servants went out and got comparative experience elsewhere and came back to another role in the civil service? And equally, wouldn't it be good for the wider economy if more people had exposure to and a deeper understanding of government and could port in their skills as they come in? And many people will do that. Many people are happy to take a haircut. Obviously, I, I don't necessarily need haircuts myself. <laughs> But many people are, are willing um, for the mission to work for government to work for much less compensation than they would otherwise do. And we can, I think, take greater advantage of that public spirited nature around not just an emergency mission, like, for example, tackling uh, the crisis around COVID, uh, but also some of the uh, enduring missions of government, which is how do we make sure that um, the core parts of the state work effectively. So, so going back to that point about uh, technology and, I suppose, kind of a user-centric experience of government. So it, it kind of struck me in, in the early 2010s around all this kind of energy around gov.uk, trying to, to bring all the government functions to one place. You know, there is an app, there is an NHS app. You know, in theory, you should be able to very simply do any interaction with, through one particular purpose. It, it, it seems... We haven't quite got there. You know, it's better than I'm sure it was in the past, and a lot more things are online than there were in the past. But it hasn't quite been 
perfected. Um, it, it, it seems like that, that is a kind of like the, the obvious solution is the, the use of technology just to make your your day-to-day -day interactions with government much better. I mean, it, thinking back to my home country in Australia, that the New South Wales government has invested hugely in this um, uh, New South Wales uh, contact app system where basically not only can you call one number to speak to the government, there's, there's not 30 different phone numbers, but depending on which, which function, there's just one number and they, they help you pretty quickly and they, they also pick up straight away, um, as well as an app where you can basically do anything, you interactions you want with government. How far away are we from that? Is that still the goal, I should say, and how far are we, are we away from actually getting there when it comes to the UK experience of government? So look, I, th I think there is real aspiration for that, and that's something you hear from permanent secretaries, you hear it from ministers, you hear it from officials, and of course, most of, most of all, you hear it from citizens. Uh, nobody wants the experience of a public service uh, process delivered badly in a clunky way uh, without the use of technology. Uh, there are really good examples around of where it's done well. Um, there's Tell Us Once, which is a government service in the UK uh, where if a family member has died, very sadly, my, you know, my mother passed away uh, last December, um, I could, I could use that service to instantly inform uh, multiple government agencies in the UK that she had died, uh, and then it, it set in motion the processes that need to be done around that. But Tell Us Once is, is an interesting service because it tells you something about the challenge of these services in government. It's much easier to do a signal that is an on-off signal, yeah? stop doing something, than do a signal that is a, a complex signal around does somebody qualify for something or not, or uh, has somebody credentialed in a certain way to, to uh, engage with a service or get a licence or whatever it might be. Um, so the net result is it's, it's, it's in principle easier to do the things that, um, the services that I think work pretty well. I renewed my driving licence two weeks ago. That service worked very well. I used that Tell Us Once um, service. It worked very well. It's much trickier if you want to perhaps engage with a tax system or engage with local government on something. What else would you say the kind of priorities are for reform? Um, so we've talked a bit about you know, that technological investment, investing in people. Is, is there kind of in, in any kind of, maybe I'm hoping too much for a magic bullet, but it seems like a lot of the time we, there isn't much assessment of where things have gone well and badly within government programs, just kind of carry on day to day, um, whether or not they're effective. You know, is, there, is there something about the way we assess programs? Is there, is there, people have talked about doing zero budgeting within government, so you, know, you basically cancel everything and, and reassess. You know, is there something like that that could help us with this process that, that could be kind of an, an ideal type solution to trying to fix some of these problems that you've identified? So look, even though I'm a, I'm a qualitative person by background, I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with management information. I think, I think good MI, good management information, is our friend in lots of this stuff. And it's a friend to track and, and, and monitor government performance, but also intervene. Um, I think um, national audit office reports are hugely useful and, and could be better made use of. There's often uh, deep insight in them, but it's not always clear that, that lots of people are reading them or, or drawing on them. And of course, there's, there's something that's, that's not new, uh, although it, 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 it has accelerated in lots of other spaces, which is shared services. Um, you know, that, you know, you, we may not be able to do much to dampen citizen demand for services. We may not be able to do much to uh, increase the funding lines that, that, that are needed to uh, meet some of that demand. We could seek to reduce the back office cost by, by advancing the shared services agenda across arm's length bodies, across central government, across the NHS, uh, and allying that to something around, around you know, modernising procurement and so it's not, it's not, a, it's not a silver bullet, 
uh, but it could be really substantive. But to do that, you also need political direction from the top and a very clear agenda around implementation. And actually, implementation, like for all of us, um, we can all have good ideas. The interesting question is, how good are we at carrying out them, carrying them out? Well, that is, a, I think, a very good note to end on. Thank you so much, um, Professor Alexander Evans of the London School of Economics for joining the IEA's podcast. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider and you can learn more about the IEA's work by visiting iea.org.uk.